Chapter 1 Where art thou? Where art thou? Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 My subject here is the first question that God ever asked of man. You will find that question in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9. Where art thou? God asked the question of Adam. Adam had sinned, and on the evening of that awful day of the first sin, the voice of God in its majesty was heard rolling down the avenues of the Garden of Eden. Adam had often heard God's voice before, and the voice of God had been the sweetest music to Adam until this day. Adam knew no greater joy than the glad communion with his Creator and his Heavenly Father. But now, all was different. And as the voice of God was heard rolling through the garden, Adam was filled with fear and tried to hide himself. That is the history of every son of Adam from that day until now. When sin enters our hearts and our lives, we seek to hide from God. Every sinner is trying to hide from the presence and the all-seeing eye of God. That accounts for a very large share of the skepticism, infidelity, agnosticism, and atheism of our day. Sinful man is trying to hide from a holy God. Men will give you many reasons why they are skeptics, and many reasons why they are infidels, agnostics, and atheists. But in the great majority of cases, the real reason is that by the denial of the existence of God, men hope to hide themselves from the discomfort of God's acknowledged presence. That accounts also for much of the neglect of the Bible. People will tell you that they do not read their Bibles because they have so much else to read and are not interested in the Bible. They will say it is a dull, stupid book to them. But the real cause of man's neglect of Bible study is that the Bible brings God near to us as no other book does, and men are uneasy in the conscious presence of God, so they neglect the book that brings God near. This also accounts for much of the absenteeism from the house of God and its services. People will give you many reasons why they do not attend church. They will tell you they cannot dress well enough to attend church, that they are too busy or too tired to attend church, that the services are dull and uninteresting. But in the great majority of cases, the reason men and women, old and young, habitually avoid church services is that the church brings God near and makes men uncomfortable in sin. Their desire to hide from God, more or less distinct, leads them to stay away from church. But Adam did not succeed in hiding from God. Neither will you succeed. No man ever succeeded in hiding from God. God said to Adam, Where art thou? And Adam had to come out from his hiding place, meet God face to face, and make a full declaration of his sin. Sooner or later, no matter how carefully we have hidden ourselves from God, every man and woman will have to come out from their hiding place, meet the all-holy God face to face, and make a full declaration of just where they stand in his presence. I believe that God is putting the question of the text to every man and woman, to every Christian, and to everyone who is not a Christian. Where art thou? Where do you stand in regard to spiritual and eternal things? Where do you stand in regard to God, heaven, righteousness, Christ, and eternity? Where art thou? 
Every wise man will be glad to face and answer that question. Every truly intelligent man desires to know just where he is. In business, every wise businessman desires to know where he stands financially. In our country at this time of year, every careful businessman takes an inventory of his stock, totals his accounts, calculates his credits and debits, and determines his assets and liabilities. He wants to know where he stands. He may discover that he does not stand as well as he thought he did. He may find that he is in debt when he hoped that his capital exceeded his liabilities. If that is true, he wants to know so he may conduct his business accordingly. Many a man has made a shipwreck of his business through unwillingness to face facts and find out where he stood. Years ago, I knew a brilliant businessman, a man gifted along certain lines of business enterprise. But his affairs got into a tangled condition. His wise business friends came to him and advised him to go through his books and find out where he stood. They said to him, If you are in bad shape, we will help you out. But the man was too proud to take their advice. He was too proud to admit that his business was in a bad way, so he refused to look into it. He gritted his teeth, set his face like a flint, and tried to plunge through. But instead of plunging through, he plunged into utter financial ruin. Though he was an exceptionally brilliant man in some ways, he made such a complete financial shipwreck that he never got on his feet again. When he died, he did not have money enough to pay his funeral expenses, and I had to pay them out of my own pocket, simply because he was not willing to swallow his pride and face facts. Many of you are also too proud to face the fact that you are morally and spiritually bankrupt, so you are going to grit your teeth, set your face like a flint, and plunge through. You will plunge into utter and eternal ruin. Every man wants to know where he stands physically. He wants to know the condition of his lungs, his heart, his stomach, and his nerves. He may be worse off than he thinks he is. He may think his heart is sound when his heart is defective. But if that is the case, he wants to know it, because if he knows that his heart is defective, he will not subject it to the strain that he otherwise would. Many a man lies today in a premature grave who might have been doing good work on earth because he was not willing to determine what his real condition was and act accordingly. Every man at sea wishes to know the location of his vessel, its exact latitude and its exact longitude. I remember once, in crossing the Atlantic Ocean some years ago, we had been sailing for days beneath clouds and through fog. We had been unable to take an observation by the sun and had been sailing by dead reckoning. One night I happened to be on deck and suddenly there was a rift in the clouds just where the North Star appeared. Word was sent below to the commanding officer. The captain of the vessel hurried on deck and I remember how he fairly laid across the compass and how carefully he took an observation by the North Star so we might know exactly where we were. We are all sailing across a perilous sea toward an eternal port and every truly intelligent man and woman will desire to know just where they are, their exact spiritual longitude and their exact spiritual latitude. How shall we consider this great question? Seriously. First of all, we should consider it seriously. It is not a question to trifle with. 
It is a singular fact that people who are intelligent and sensible about everything else, who would not think of trifling with the great financial questions of the day or with great social problems, when they come to this great question of eternity, will treat it as a joke. I remember one night in an American city, a little shoeshiner on the street was blacking my boots, and I asked this shoeshiner the question, My boy, are you saved? And the boy treated it as a joke. I was not surprised. That is what you would expect of a poor, illiterate, uneducated shoeshiner on the street. But it is not what you would expect of thinking men and thinking women that when you come to these great eternal problems of God, eternity, salvation, heaven, and hell, that they would be treated as a joke. But these things are treated as a joke by some people. Any man or woman who trifles with questions like these plays the part of a fool. I don't care what your culture is, what your social position is, what your reputation is for scholarship. I don't hesitate to affirm that unless you have faced or will face this great question of your spiritual condition with the most profound earnestness and seriousness, you are playing the part of a fool. Honestly. Secondly, we should consider this question honestly. There are many people in our day who are trying to deceive themselves, trying to deceive others, and trying to deceive God. There are many men who, in their inmost hearts, know that they are wrong, yet are trying to persuade themselves that they are right, trying to persuade others that they are right, and trying to persuade God that they are right. You cannot deceive God. It will do you no good to deceive anybody else, and it is complete folly to deceive yourself. The biggest fool on earth is the man who fools himself. Be honest. If you are lost, admit it. If you are on the road to hell, acknowledge it. If you are not a Christian, say so. If you are an enemy of God, face the facts. If you are a child of the devil, admit it. Be honest. Honest with yourself, honest with your fellow man, and honest with God. Thoroughly. In the third place, we should consider the question thoroughly. There are many people who are honest enough and serious enough as far as they go, but they don't follow through. They are superficial. They give these tremendous questions a few moments' thought, and then their weak minds grow weary and they say, I guess I'm all right. I will take my chances. You can't afford to guess on questions like these. We must have not probability, but absolute certainty. It will not satisfy me to hope I am saved. I must know that I am saved. It will not satisfy me to hope I am a child of God. I must know that I am a child of God. It will not satisfy me to hope that I am bound for heaven. I must know that I am bound for heaven. Do not lay these questions down until you have embraced them and know for an absolute certainty just where you stand. Prayerfully in the fourth place, you should consider these questions prayerfully. God tells us in His Word, and we know it from experience, that the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is exceedingly corrupt. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. There is nothing that the human heart is so deceitful about as its moral and spiritual condition. Every man and woman by nature is very sharp-sighted to the faults of others and very blind to their own faults. What we need is to face this question in prayer. 
you will never know where you stand until God shows you. Not until we pray at least the substance of David's prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. And God sheds the light of His Holy Spirit into our hearts and shows us ourselves as He sees us. Will we ever know ourselves as we really are? The great Scottish poet Burns never said a wiser thing than when he wrote, Oh, would some power give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us. It would from many a blunder free us and foolish notion. But there is something better than to see ourselves as others see us, and that is to see ourselves as God sees us. Let us not leave until we see ourselves in the light of God's presence, as God sees us, and that will only happen in answer to definite and earnest prayer. One morning in an American city, I met the pastor of a church of which I had formerly been pastor. As we met, he said to me, Brother Torim, I had an awful experience this morning. I said, What was it, Brother Norris? You know Mrs. So-and-so, he said, mentioning a member of the church. You know she is dying. She sent for me to come and see her this morning. I hurried to her home. The moment I opened the door and entered the room, she cried from her bed, Oh, Brother Norris, I have been a professing Christian for forty years. I am now dying and have just found out in my dying hour that I was never saved at all. The horror of it. To be a professing Christian for forty years and never realize until your life is at an end that you have never really been a Christian at all. Better to discover it then than in eternity, but better to understand it in the dawn of your professed Christian experience. Better to find it out now. I do not doubt that in this great crowd there are many who have been professing Christians for years, but they were never saved. After we had left Liverpool, I read a letter in a paper edited by a clergyman in that city who was complaining about our meetings. In this letter, addressed to the public press, the writer said, These men produced the impression that some of our church members are not saved. Well, that is the impression we tried to produce, for that is the truth of God. In the Church of England and in the nonconformist bodies, you will find many who are unsaved. Scripturally Once more, we should consider this question scripturally according to the Bible. God has given to you and me only one safe chart and compass to guide us on our voyage through life toward eternity. That chart and compass is the Bible, the book I hold in my hand. If you steer your course according to this book, you steer safely. If you steer your course according to your own feelings, according to the speculation of the petty philosopher or the theologian, according to anything but the clear declaration of the only book of God, you steer your course toward shipwreck. Any hope that is not founded on the clear, unmistakable teaching of God's Word is absolutely worthless. Any hope founded on the Bible is a sure hope. Any hope that is not built upon the Bible is not worth anything. In one of my pastorates, the Heavenly Father had entrusted a young married couple with a sweet little child for a brief period. Then God, in His infinite wisdom, and wisdom in this case that was altogether incomprehensible, took that little child home to Himself. 
Their hearts were deeply touched, and in the hour of their sorrow I went to call upon them. Taking advantage of their tenderness of heart, I pointed them to that Savior with whom their child was safely at home, and they professed to accept that Savior. After some days and weeks had passed, and the first keenness of the sorrow had gone, they drifted back into the world. I called upon them to speak with them. Only the wife was at home. I began by talking about the little child and how safe and happy it was in the arms of Jesus. Of course, she gladly assented. Then I turned it a little bit and said to her, Do you expect to see your child again? Oh, she said, certainly. I have no doubt that I will see my child again. I said, Why do you expect to see your child again? She said, Because the child is with Jesus and I expect to be with him when I die too. I said, Do you think you are saved? Oh, yes, she said, I think I am saved. I said, Why do you think you are saved? Because I feel so, she said. I said, Do you think you have eternal life? Oh, yes, she said, I think I have eternal life. I said, Why do you think you have eternal life? Because, she said, I feel so. I said, Is that your only ground of hope? She said, That is all. I said, Your hope is not worth anything. That seemed cruel, didn't it? But it was kind. I said, Your hope is not worth anything. Can you put your finger on anything in the sure word of God that proves you have everlasting life? No, she said, I cannot. Well then, I said, Your hope is absolutely worthless. Then she turned on me, which she had a perfect right to do. It is quite right to talk back to preachers. I believe in it, and she began to talk back. She said, Do you expect to go to heaven when you die? I said, Yes, I know I shall. She said, When you die, you expect to be with Christ? Yes, I said, I know I shall. She said, Do you think you have everlasting life? Yes, I said, I know I have. She said, Can you put your finger on anything in the Word of God that proves you have eternal life? I said, Yes, thank God. John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life. Now I know I believe in the Son of God, and on the sure ground of God's Word, I know I have everlasting life. Can you put your finger upon anything in the Word of God that proves you are saved? If you can't, I advise you to find out if you are saved. If not, be saved right now. And if you are saved, find out something in God's Word that proves it. Additional Questions Are you saved or are you lost? One thing more before I close, and that is a few suggestions that will help you in considering this question. Where art thou? Are you saved or are you lost? You are one or the other. Unless you have been definitely saved by a definite acceptance of a definite Jesus, Jesus Christ, you are definitely lost. There are just two classes, lost sinners and saved sinners. To which class do you belong? Are you on the road to heaven or the road to hell? You are on one or the other. There are only two roads, as we see by the Scripture lesson which I present. The Lord Jesus tells us that there are two and only two roads. The broad road which leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life everlasting. Which road are you on? 
Are you on the road that leads up to God and heaven and glory? Or are you on the road that leads down to Satan and sin and shame and hell? Some years ago, an English sailor came into a mission in New York City, and as he left the mission, not very much affected, a worker at the door put a little card into his hand. On this card were printed these words, If I should die tonight, I would go to... The place was left blank, and underneath it was written, Please fill out and sign your name. The sailor, without even reading the card, put it in his pocket, went down to the ship to his bunk, and put that card on the edge of his bunk. On the journey, he was thrown from the rigging. This broke his leg. They took him down to his berth, and as he lay there day after day, that card stared him in the face. He looked at it one day. If I should die tonight, I would go to... Well, he said, if I filled that out honestly, I would have to write hell. If I should die tonight, I would go to hell. But I won't fill it out that way. Lying there in his berth, he took Jesus Christ and filled out the card. If I should die tonight, I would go to heaven. He went on to England but came back to New York, walked into the mission, and handed in the card with his name signed to it. Suppose you had such a card to fill out. If I should die tonight, I would go to... What would your honest answer be? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? We live in a day in which many superficial thinkers tell us that all men are the children of God. That is not the teaching of the Bible, and it is not the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says distinctly in John chapter 8, verse 44, talking to certain Jews, Ye are of your father the devil. And we are told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, that in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. And we are told distinctly in John chapter 1, verse 12, that as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. Children of God or children of the devil? Every one of us is either one or the other. Which are you? When I was speaking more than a year ago in the city of Ballarat in Australia, there sat a long line of educated Chinese men in the meeting listening to the sermon. I was preaching on the same text. I came to the point I have come to now, and I said to myself, I guess I will leave that out. That may offend somebody without doing any good. But somehow God would not let me leave it out, so I put it in and declared the whole counsel of God. The next night, when I gave the invitation, among the others who came to the front was almost the entire line of educated Chinese men. When they got up to give their testimony, one of them said, The reason I came tonight and took Christ was that I was here last night and heard Dr. Tory say that everyone was either a child of God or a child of the devil. I knew I was not a child of God, and therefore I knew I must be a child of the devil. I made up my mind I would be a child of the devil no longer and therefore I have come forward tonight to take Jesus Christ. I hope some of you will have as much sense as that educated Chinese man. What kind of Christian are you? Are you a mere formal Christian, or are you a real Christian? You know there are two kinds. Are you one of these men or women who call themselves Christians, who go to the house of God on Sunday, who go to communion, and perhaps teach a Bible class or a Sunday school class, but run around to the theater, a card party, 
dances, and all the frivolity and foolishness of the world the rest of the week? Are you one of the Christians who is trying to hold on to Jesus Christ with one hand and the world with the other? Or are you a real Christian who has renounced the world with your whole heart and given yourself to Jesus Christ with all your heart, a Christian who can sing, I surrender all, and mean it? Where art thou? What kind of Christian are you? Are you for Christ or are you against Him? You know you are either one or the other, for he says so. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, in the words of Jesus himself, He that is not with me is against me. Everyone is either with Jesus wholeheartedly, confessedly, and openly, or else they are against Jesus. Which are you? For Christ or against him? In my first pastorate, Year after year, for a number of years, there came an outpouring of God's Spirit. In the second or third of these gracious outpourings of His Spirit, a great many of the leading businessmen of the place were converted. It was a small place, but one of the leading businessmen would not take a stand. He was one of the most exemplary men in the community, most amiable, attractive, upright, a constant attendee at church, a member of my Bible class, and a member of my choir, but he was one of those men who wanted to please both sides. He was identified with friends in business, in the Masonic Lodge and elsewhere, who were not out-and-out Christians, and he was afraid that he would alienate them if he came out honestly for Christ. So the weeks passed by. After the service one Sunday morning, as he was leaving my Bible class on the choir platform, he passed by the superintendent of the Sunday school, who was an intimate friend. They had been in the Civil War together. As he passed by this intimate friend, he turned to him and said, George? Well, what is it, Porter? said the other, calling him by his first name. He said, George, when are you going to take a stand? He said, ring the bell. Promptly, the superintendent stepped up to the bell and rang it, and the congregation going out of the building turned around in surprise, wondering what was going to happen. George stepped to the front of the platform. In this community, everybody knew everybody else by their first name, so they were all curious. George said, Friends, I have heard it said time and again during these meetings that a man must either be for Jesus Christ or against him. I want you all to know that from this time on, M, his wife, and I are for Christ. He decided for the whole family. And he truly did, in fact, for when they stood before the platform to receive the right hand of fellowship into the church, he stood there with his wife, his father-in-law, his brother-in-law, and his sister-in-law, every member of the family that was not already in the fold. There are many of you whose sympathies for years have been with the church of Jesus Christ, but you have never been man enough or woman enough to take an open stand. Take it now. Say, as for me and my house, we are for Christ. Where art thou? Put the question to yourself. Where art thou? There is one reason that makes it exceedingly important for you to face this question, and that is the fact that where you are now will in all likelihood determine where you shall spend eternity. A story is told of Dr. Forbes Winslow, the elder of London, the eminent pathologist in diseases of the mind. A young French nobleman came to London with letters of introduction from leading Frenchmen, including one from Napoleon III, who was at that time emperor. 
These letters introduced him to Dr. Forbes Winslow and solicited Winslow's best offices for the young man. He presented his letters and Dr. Winslow said, What is your trouble? He said, Dr. Winslow, I cannot sleep. I have not had a good night's sleep for two years and unless something is done for me, I shall go insane. Dr. Winslow said, Why can't you sleep? Well, said the young man, I can't tell you. Dr. Winslow said, Have you lost any money? No, he said, I've lost no money. Have you lost friends? No, I have lost no friends recently. Have you suffered in honor or reputation? Not that I know of. Well then, said the doctor, why can't you sleep? The young man said, I would rather not tell you. Well, said Dr. Winslow, if you don't tell me, I can't help you. Well, he said, if I must tell you, I will. I am an infidel. My father was an infidel before me, and yet in spite of the fact that I am an infidel, and my father was an infidel, every night when I lie down to sleep, I am confronted with the question of eternity and where I shall spend it. All night that question rings in my ears. Eternity, where shall I spend it? If I succeed in getting to sleep, my dreams are worse than my waking hours, and I wake from my sleep again. Dr. Winslow said, I can't do anything for you. What? said the young Frenchman. Have I come all the way over here from Paris for you to treat me, but have you dashed my hopes to the ground? Do you mean to tell me that my case is hopeless? Dr. Winslow repeated, I can do nothing for you, but I can tell you a physician who can. And he walked across his study, took up his Bible from the center of the table, and opened it to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 6. He read, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then, looking at the Frenchman, he said, That is the only physician in the world that can help you. There was a curl of scorn upon the Frenchman's lips. He said, Dr. Winslow, do you mean to tell me that you, an eminent scientist, believe in that worn-out superstition of the Bible and Christianity? Yes, said Dr. Winslow. I believe the Bible. I believe in Jesus Christ. And believing in the Bible and believing in Jesus Christ has saved me from what you are today. The young fellow stopped and thought, then he said, Dr. Winslow, if I am an honest man, I ought to at least be willing to consider it, shouldn't I? Yes, sir. Well, he said, will you explain it to me? And the eminent physician became a physician of souls. He sat down with his open Bible and for several consecutive days showed the young Frenchman the way of life. The Frenchman saw Christ as his divine atoning Savior and put his trust in him. He went back to Paris with peace of mind to sleep at night. He had solved the great question of eternity and where he would spend it, for he would spend it with Christ in glory. Where will you spend eternity? Where you will spend eternity very likely will depend upon where you are right now.